It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Climate Solutions Show. Coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Um, We'd also like to give a huge thanks to our listeners who donated to 3CR during this Radiothon. It's been a great response and just a reminder, we're also taking donations still in the next few weeks for both the Friday and the Monday show. And thanks for all your support. My name is Kay Wenigal and I'm joined by my co-host today, Natalie Bucknell. Hello, Kay. Hello, listeners. Hi, Nat. Today we're going to be talking to Amanda, Dr. Amanda Cahill, Cahill, who is the Director and Founder of, for the Centre of Social Change, which will soon be launched as the next economy. She founded the centre because she is inspired by the many people around the world who already are making the world a better place to live in and wants to support those doing good to do even better. With the challenges we're facing adapting to climate change, communities transitioning from fossil fuels, local community initiatives and broadly our whole society transitioning to a new economic system that tackles injustices and environmental challenges. Amanda has spent nearly two decades working on community development projects in countries such as diverse as Brazil, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, India, Timor-Leste and Indigenous Australia. Her work has touched on a range of areas including community enterprise development, health promotion, climate change adaption, appropriate technology and women's empowerment. Her PhD in human geography examined the political implications of the strength-based approach to local economic development in the Philippines. Dr. Carroll is also a former board member of BZE. Hello, Amanda, and welcome to our show. Hi, Kay, and hi, Natalie. Hi, Amanda. Amanda, you're the founder of the Centre for Social Change and about to be founder for the next economy. Tell us a bit about your journey and how it led you to starting the Centre for Social Change. Um, yeah, so I started the Centre for Social Change in 2012, at the end of 2012, which um, was a pretty interesting time in Australia because we had uh, Tony Abbott coming, well, Tony Abbott coming in and Campbell Newman coming in around that time in 2013. And yeah, originally I wanted to start the Centre to do grassroots economic projects with community groups and, and be a bit experimental but and that was the work we were doing overseas supporting local livelihoods and local economic development um, but with the political changes in Australia overnight we saw big changes to environment and community groups losing a lot of their funding and a lot of soul searching in Australia around how do we get back to our community roots how do we organize communities uh, instead of doing these top-down campaigns, actually mobilise people for action. So the focus of the centre in Australia was really around supporting people to take action on things that they were passionate about and to support organisations to rethink their purpose in terms of 
how do we build a movement in Australia around different different issues? Um, and then the focus of the work really changed about three years ago um, when sort of those two pieces of work, the economic development work we were doing overseas and the community organising work came together when one of the groups that we, environment groups we've been working with up in Mackay um, invited me up to North Queensland because to talk because um, they had Tim, the wonderful Tim Buckley up there talking about the end of coal and this was um, during the time where the, the coal price was in decline and, and people locally in that region up in North Queensland were really feeling the pinch around what was happening to the coal industry. And so he was presenting and they they were freaking out basically because they're like, yeah, we know, like we're looking at the end of coal, we're feeling the downturn, what are we going to do about it? Um, and Tim didn't have any answers. He's like, here's the analysis of the markets internationally and where it's going. But there was, but when people asked that question of what do we do about it, they just weren't sure. So they rang me and said, can you present with Tim around what communities can do if they want to start thinking about a different economic future? And at the time I was told, don't worry, they're going to hate you, doesn't matter what you say, because <laughs> I was like, I don't know much about coal. I know about I know about economic processes, but I don't know about the coal industry. And they're like, doesn't matter, they're going to hate you. They're going to think you're a greenie, so just say whatever you want to say. Very encouraging, <laughs> we isn't found, it? Yeah, I was like, great. <laughs> um, but we actually found the opposite. We got all these TV interviews and radio interviews and... When I got back to Brisbane, the phone just started ringing and all these emails came in. And what was interesting about them was that the conversation would always go the same way. It'd be like, uh, hi, yeah, my name's Bill. Um, don't tell anyone I'm talking to you. <laughs> um, I'm on the Chamber of Commerce or I'm a local councillor. Um, I'm not a greenie, but you make sense to me. Can you come and talk to us about what we can do about it? So I went back up and... Thought, you know, arrange something like um, 12 interviews over five days. By the time I got off the plane, I had 17 interviews. And by the end of the five days, I'd spoken to 52 or 54 people, something like that. Um, and it was all word of mouth, people, and people for the first time saying that, you know, they're really scared to talk about this publicly, about what is the future beyond coal going to look like? And I was often the first person they'd actually spoken to really openly. About. Really opened up to. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and since then, the work's just taken off. So there's kind of two communities we're working with. One is <clears throat> coal regions where they're starting to see the impact and starting to think about what is going to happen post-fossil fuels. Um, and the other type of community, uh, regional or rural communities that are doing it tough for all kinds of different reasons, not necessarily in the coal or gas area, um, they're interested in talking about what are the economic opportunities in moving towards a zero emissions economy. And and that's what we're focused on now, specifically is how do communities deal with economic change by focusing on solutions that are moving us to the future that we know we need to have and seeing that as an economic opportunity, not just a technical challenge. So we're trying to change the conversation in Australia um, to stop arguing about renewables and baseload and going actually across the board, across all the areas that BZE talks about, energy waste, buildings, transport and land use, there are actually really amazing business opportunities for that fit with a regional context because they can be decentralised and they can actually leave regions more resilient in the long term across a number of areas, not just around climate change issues. 
and people are just really excited about it. <laughs> so um, we've just been doing a lot of talks and around the country. Um, and then where there's interest, we can actually support um, people on the ground to build their capacity to start a community-wide conversation as a basis for planning for transition. Fantastic. It, it, that sounds like you've really turned things on their head, Amanda, by turning the discussion from what are we moving from to what we're moving towards. That that, that seems a really key aspect of, of how to change these conversations and make them really positive. Yeah, and it's focused on solutions. And it's also we we share stories of other communities that are just getting on with it. So I think there's a lot of disempowerment and and fear that comes with that. Like, it's crazy going into communities everywhere, how much fear and uncertainty there is because it feels like the world's ending. Um, but just starting to acknowledge that and go, yep, everyone's feeling it um, because, and of course they are, the political debate is horrendous and there's so much misinformation around nobody knows who to trust and it's all focused on the end of something instead of going, well, what can we move towards? And actually the world is moving towards this there are examples of communities all around the world that are really taking the bull by the horns and going, what can we do? And starting to build the new industries and the new jobs around that. And it's just fascinating how quickly the energy shifts in the room from one of being very closed down and very sceptical and afraid to really excited and then actually quite angry that they're not hearing this from our leaders and they're not hearing it from politicians, mm. they're not seeing government support into it. Even though actually there is, there are pockets of support and there, there's actually quite a lot of investment in different things as well, but we're not hearing about that in the media. Um, so just shifting that conversation just creates a space for people to think more creatively and take some of that power back and go, okay, well, what can we do about it? So, so Amanda, um, I guess, you know, us as presenters and a lot of our listeners um, aren't from regional areas but are from more urban contexts. Do, do some of these learnings and, you know, initiatives and approaches translate readily to you know, more urban communities? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if we're talking about, I mean, we, I mean, I guess that's just where we're getting invited in is regional communities at the moment. Um, but, you know, the solutions that BZE has been talking about, there's much urban-based as they are uh, rural-based. Um, and actually, you know, and we're seeing, I guess we're seeing a lot more action in communities around more ambitious targets in the wake of, you know, not having ambitious national targets around emissions reductions. Um, so there is probably more happening in the cities. But at the same time, we're constantly in risk of things that have been in place for a long time that are good being rolled back, which we've, we've seen in Brisbane recently. So that discussion around what does a zero emission city look like um, and what does that you know, what does that mean? And, you know, we can always do more around waste and, um, you know, all across all areas and starting to plan for, you know, the rollout of, of new transportation, new transport technologies and what does that mean for the design of cities? So there's work to do everywhere. But at the moment where we're getting called to work is that rural and regional context. It sounds like you're doing exactly the sort of work that BZE does which is solutions-based. Um, BZE always focuses on being a solutions-based organisation. That sort of context, can you tell us more about the sort of change processes that you're using and working with with communities? So we've actually, so as you mentioned in the intro, I actually have a history with 
BZE. I got involved in 2011 and was on the board Um, and love BZE's work. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And we we love your work too. Thank you. Um, So we've partnered with BZE, just to give you an example of how it works, on the Zero Emissions Byron project that's been going for the last few years. So I guess what we look at is more the community processes. So BZE's... um, Strength has been the technical information and translating that in a way that people can understand it in a really simple way and making it practical and showing what the implications of that are. And what we do is the processes around how do you bring people together, who do you need to bring together to get to action, um, training people up in basic project management if they want to get from an idea to actually implementing something. So we're kind of more on the, the planning and processes side of things um, and implementation side of it and managing the politics. You mentioned just before about there being investment potential in most of these communities, but it's not really obvious. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I keep meeting these really wealthy people that (laughs) (laughs) might be working for investment banks or superannuation funds or philanthropists who are interested in investing in this or are starting to. Like, for example, the Impact Investing Group is one of the biggest investors in renewable energy in Australia. They've got a huge portfolio um, of investment there, which we don't hear about in the public media. But the, the kind of the issue at the moment, and I guess this is where we're adding value, is you've got rural and regional areas wanting to do something, and often the projects are quite small-scale. So if you think about some of the Byron projects, a lot of the opportunities have been fairly small scale. There's a few bigger ones now. Um, but how do we build the capacity of local councils and people in those communities that can develop projects that are at a scale that are of interest to investors or comp together a couple of different projects in the site so that it's big enough for, um, for a return that investors are interested in? So there's a bit of a mismatch at the moment. And there's a lot of funds, but they're... Like for some of the government um, funding, for example, is very large-scale funding and it's, it just doesn't match what local and regional communities can do at the moment. Um, but that's what we're working on, like how do we make that work? On both sides, how do we push back against investors and philanthropists to say, well, if you genuinely want to invest in this future, you need to be more flexible about how you're investing your money and at the local level go build the capacity so the projects are you know, professional and... Um, you know, we'll stand up to the due diligence test testing that investors expect. And do you work with state governments as well on this? Um, I have been talking to a number of state governments and even national as well, but that's been more in terms of them inviting me in to give them feedback or um, advising on policy uh, work. There, there has been some interest from state governments around rolling out transition planning um, but hasn't come off yet, but maybe, fingers crossed, there'll be an announcement um, at some point in the next couple of months. Um, so I think governments are really struggling with this. They don't know the biggest, like, for example, I was in the, um, presented to the Senate inquiry into the retirement of coal-fired plants last year, and there's a real confusion around what government's role is in this um, and a big debate around whether or not you know, we can just leave it to the market and it'll work itself out or whether government needs to support it and if so, what does that support need to look like, which is, you know, a debate that's not just happening in Australia, that's happening around the world at the moment. So, yeah, it's it's been an interesting process to actually be talking to 
advisors and, and ministers um, and saying, you know, you have a political mandate. There are people on the ground, even coal workers, saying, we see the writing on the wall, why aren't you doing something about this? Mm, yeah. But then seeing how the politics just stops that action from materialising. For those of you who have just joined us, we're talking to Dr Amanda Cowell, the founder and director for the Centre of Social Change and the Next Economy. So following up on that point, for instance, say at Hazelwood, where well, the Hazelwood plant has just closed down in Latrobe Valley, are you doing any work there and would you be also uh, interacting with the Victorian state government? Um, I have had... I've had some work down in Latrobe Valley. I've been down, I think, three times in the last two years, uh, meeting with different groups on the ground. Um, and I've met with Latrobe Valley Authority as well on a couple of different occasions. But we haven't done any project work down there. Um, I guess we've come in at a time of crisis um, and it's it's kind of tricky because it's past the point at which you can do really good community-wide engagement around a planning process um, when the crisis has hit. It's almost too late. People are scrambling to try and make sense of what's going on. Um, but, yeah, we've got some pretty good relationships with different groups in the Valley. I can imagine that it would be a good government to work with because they have a big task ahead of them and they're also very willing to, to do something and to do whatever they can. So... An organisation such as yours would be invaluable in helping point them in the right direction. Yeah, I mean they've already got the. There's already a lot happening in Latrobe Valley, which is part of the reason I haven't pushed more because they. It's almost a problem that they've got too much support at the moment, <laughs> um, at, including like a number of the universities, like RMIT is quite heavily involved in a couple of projects. Okay. Federation University. Um, so I've been at a couple of forums where it's almost like there are there are too many too many players. So I've stepped back a little bit, um, but yeah, I, it's been quite commendable what the Andrews government has put in place and how they have scrambled to try and get something going in the wake of the Hazelwood announcement. And I think there's some long term thinking around what's going to happen next with more closures on the horizon. Um, but it's been a really tricky task. I mean, this is still a new thing that we're dealing with in terms of the scale of the industry and closures and and how do we do that in a holistic way in terms of supporting workers across not just the financial support but you know training and, and jobs and placements and redeploying workers, which successfully the unions and the government were able to, to ha- get happening in the wake of Hazelwood. So actually taking some of the workers that would have just lost their jobs and negotiating with the other plants that they can get work there. Um, but also rehabilitating sites, ensuring energy security into the future, and also the regional economic development question, which I think probably is the bit that Latrobe Valley is struggling with the most at the moment. It's like we've dealt with the initial closure and the, what's going to happen with the workers, but and the big focus is on energy security, but that big question around how do we think about strengthening and diversifying that regional economy for the long term, um, there's a lot more work to do, I think, in the Valley around that question. And as you say, that happened. the, the whole transition happened so quickly that you really needed a few more years to prepare for that and do it in an orderly fashion to make it work properly. Yeah, I mean, 
idealistically, I'd, I'd hope that we could learn from that and do a better job of that in the future. Um, the politics gets in the way of that, I guess, <laughs> in terms of wanting to acknowledge that there's closure, um, makes every you know, politicians and, and business vulnerable to, to acknowledge that. So, you know, there's often a lot of denial in these situations around even when the closure is going to happen. We saw workers being told by Angie that the, the company, that they were going to have a job until 2025. And that was the year of the announcement. Six months later, they're being told that they don't have a job anymore. That's incredible, um, isn't it? So, you know, it seems logical to want to do this planning long term, but there's a whole lot of interests at play that make it a lot more complicated than that, unfortunately. Mm, it certainly sounds like it. And yet we know that now that Hazelwood's closed, Yolon's going to close in a few years and then Luoyang A and Luoyang B. It's just a matter of time and, you know, probably, in the, well, it has to be within the next five or ten years. So it, does that help in terms of transitioning? I think it helps to start a different conversation. I don't think you're ever going to get everybody on board. Um, I'd like to think that local governments are probably better placed to start thinking about that and acknowledging that. Um, and most of the work that we're getting actually is at the invitation of, of local government, which is really interesting. Mm. Um, but it's the same thing as up north around Mackay, which is up around the Galilee Basin area and where the, the port's going to go in at Abbott Point. Or may go in. You know, and when I first met, well, <laughs> yeah, it's planning to go in. Um, and, you know, three years ago when I first went up there, I was shocked at how many people when well, it, we're accepting the uncertainty around it and going, well, it may not go ahead. And whether it goes ahead or not, actually, we're vulnerable. We've been, we've been made more vulnerable by the crazy boom, coal, boom and coal prices that wasn't supposed to last very long, but it has lasted 10 years. Um, that's actually made us all more vulnerable. It's actually had a negative impact on, on agriculture. So we need to diversify anyway, and we need to start investing in different kind of infrastructure and different kind of regional economic development opportunities. So I was quite surprised by that then. I had the sense, um, having chatted to somebody recently, though, that with the Queensland government kind of coming out really positively around Adani and now Adani making announcements that it's going ahead, that, you know, when people are desperate, they just they jump onto that and then they get rid of that idea that it won't happen. So it makes it much harder to have a conversation about the future um, even though, you know, the financial information and everything looks like it probably won't happen. Mm. (laughs) And Adani's made this announcement about five or six times in the last few years anyway. So would you believe it this time around? Yeah, exactly. So it's just how much damage is going to get done in the meantime um, is the question. So, So, And that makes makes me angry because it's leading people down the garden path when Mm. we actually need to be getting ready for this. I mean, and this is what I say to people, whether coal, you know, looking at the international markets, the demand for Australian coal is under threat. And whether that's, whether we get another five years or whether we get 15, that actually doesn't matter. We need to start transitioning now. Like Germany is a really good example. In the mid-90s, they decided to move away from coal fire plants and they're about to close their last one. That's taken 25 years to get to this point and they've done it in a way where there's been not one forced redundancy. Yes. So they've managed to retrain people, retire people early, move younger people from one closed plant to another one. And it's been a good process. So whether we've got 20 years or not, which I don't think we do, I don't think many people do, we can't anyway for climate reasons, but even on the fact that our 
coal-fired plants are ageing, like, and it's more economical to build renewable energy than it is to build new coal or even clean coal. Um, so we need to be starting to think about this anyway. So, and that resonates with people on the ground. They see the writing on the wall, and they're angry around why you know, government's not just talking about getting on with the job. Yeah, it really um, beggars belief at times, doesn't it? That it just seems completely illogical. So, Amanda, you, you've worked all over the world and um, from some of your writing in that it, it seems that there's similarities where, wherever you go. What are the, the similarities that you see in you know, working in regional Australia with other communities around the world in terms of what, what works? Uh, what works? What works in mobilising people and empowering them to, to make their change for the better? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing which I kind of stumbled on is, and I stumbled on it because when I first went up to Mackay, I couldn't get over how scared people were. And it was really interesting because I was interviewing people across all sectors, including farmers. And I had this moment when one of the farmers said word for word what I'd heard from farmers in India and the Philippines and Fiji, which was around not feeling like he had any choice. And I just went, what? That's crazy. Like, we're in Australia. We have so many resources. We've got government support for different things. We've got technical expertise. There's money. How can you feel as disempowered as people in the other countries I've worked in where, you know, materially they're struggling? Um, and so just being able to open that up for discussion, I think, is the first thing, kind of going, well, why? What, what's going on here? And acknowledging that there are bigger trends affecting communities that people don't have a lot of control over, but at least articulating what is going on and that our economy is changing um, is a first step. Okay. People going, okay, cool. The second thing is acknowledging the strengths and actually working with people to get them to identify what resources and infrastructure and skills and um, institutions that they have locally that they can build on. So instead of looking at it as everything as a loss or a lack, actually looking at what people have to start working with and to build on so that we find solutions that are actually appropriate for that context that are actually going to work with what's already there. Um, so I think those are probably the two things and and actually working with people for them to start taking action on that to start doing their own planning instead of flying in an expert from the city who does the analysis for them writes a report that sits on a shelf and nobody mm. reads yeah that's a good how do point, we actually yeah build capacity in those regional areas where people are leading that planning process no yeah. i'm not talking about joe Bloggs. i'm talking about local councils and economic development institutions like the regional development authority um, and people whose job it is to do that planning and to think about what's happening in that local community and who care about what happens to yeah. the community. Now, Amanda, we've just about run out of time. We've got about a minute left. So would you... Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know, it goes so fast, doesn't it? <laughs> would you be able to tell us what the next economy will look like, your new yeah. organisation? So I guess we're really just rebranding in a way. We're not changing the work we're doing. I guess the Centre for Social Change is dealing helping communities deal with a lot of different changes. Now we're working with communities dealing with economic change. And we want to focus on how do we um, support communities by building their capacity to start building an economy that's good for people and planet. So let's okay. get past this idea that it's jobs versus the environment and actually look at how we can create 
jobs and support ourselves while regenerating the environment, including looking at zero emissions yeah, um, yeah. technologies as a way forward. So yeah. if people are interested, they can like the Social Change Facebook page or um, subscribe on the Senate for Social Change website. And then once we've launched the next economy, hopefully in September, um, then we'll send everyone a notice and they can find out more about the events that we've got coming up. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Amanda. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Amanda Cowell from the founder, the founder and director of the Centre for Social Change and The Next Economy. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions as is, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and we hope to catch you again next week. It's not a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.